Show us what Columbia looks like. This is what Columbia looks like. The best place for Columbia College news. I'll give my life for this cause, and I will die for this cause. Covering the stories Chicagoans care about. They're calling for one Chicago. Shut down, they shut down. This is Chronicle Headlines. Hello, everybody, and happy first week of November, and welcome into another episode of Chronicle Headlines. I am your host, Blaze Mesa. On today's program, we will be talking about parent leave policies at Columbia, graduate student instructors, and $1 lots for sale. But first, Columbia will be visited by the Higher Learning Commission for its accreditation visit. The site visit will take place November 5th and 6th, according to the Associate Provost for Accreditation Assessment, Neil Pagano. Accreditation visits look at certain criteria such as mission, integrity, teaching and learning in quality resources and support, teaching and learning in evaluation and improvement, and resources, planning, and institutional preferences. Site visits are not uncommon and occur around every 10 years. Pagano said the college is preparing for the visit by writing a report showing they meet all the criteria listed. Columbia was first accredited in 1974 and has been visited about every 10 years since. The last visit was in 2009. In order for a college or university to receive things like federal funds from the Department of Education, so grants and loans, and for courses to transfer among institutions, you need to be recognized by one of six regional accrediting associations in the country. Our second story this week is about the Millennium Park Art Market, which opens November 16th through November 18th. The market will sell art, including goods from Shop Columbia. Shop Columbia will include approximately 25 student artists, said Rhonda Payne, Director of Student Spaces and Retail Strategist at Columbia. The winter holidays are always strong selling points because everyone's, you know, shopping for their family and friends. Mm -hmm. So we're thinking that a combination of people, you know, looking to buy holiday gifts as well as having this increased audience, um, we're going to have, like, a really strong sales opportunity. Sophomore graphic design major Jordan Hasek has been selling his work with Shop Columbia for about a year and a half. Hasek's art includes a variety of pins and patches and it will be shown in the art market. Supposedly there's like over 10,000 people interested on Facebook so that's awesome. I've personally have participated in some markets and they don't have an estimated attendance rate that high so that's yeah. really cool. Alisa Baum Program Director of the Chicago Markets in the Department of Cultural Affairs and Special Events said the art market will have over 175 different artists. Over to City Hall for our next story. Taxi, Uber, and Lyft drivers rallied outside the City Hall for better working conditions on October 31st. According to a May 15th study from the Economic Policy Institute, Uber drivers can earn around $9.21 an hour, the study factored in commission fees, vehicle expenses, and the cost for health insurance. For, for years, the city has instituted an uh, unfair standard with uh, rideshare regulations and taxi regulations. And so today we're coming together, cab drivers and rideshare drivers are coming together, and livery drivers, to say enough is enough. Uh, they need to, um, you know, rideshare drivers are complaining they can't make any money. Cab drivers are complaining they can't make any money. That was David Kreisman, a spokesperson for Cab Drivers United. Kreisman said cab drivers want a cap on the number of cars allowed to participate in ride-sharing services. He specifically wanted to limit the number of cars coming in from out of state. 
The rally was held outside City Hall to gain attention of the aldermen and the mayor, said Eli Martin, one of the co-founders of Chicago Rideshare Advocacy. And there's zero benefits. There's no paid time off. There's no health insurance. There's no sick pay. There's none of that. So once you factor in your operating costs of owning a vehicle and all of these other things, a lot of these studies have shown that most rideshare drivers are now making around minimum wage or less than minimum wage. And that, again, that's for a job with no benefits. Again, that was Eli Martin, but I have Alexandra Yetter in the studio, who continued to report on the faculty survey story from a week ago. But in this week's article, you looked more at parental leave policies, and the Chronicle reported October 29th that 56% of respondents to the faculty survey were dissatisfied with their parental leave policy. The number of faculty members dissatisfied parental, by parental leave policies decreased from 66% dissatisfied in 2017 to 56% dissatisfied this year. So there is a growing number of faculty who are more satisfied with the parental leave policy, but some people you spoke to in the story had to kind of maneuver certain pregnancies around like summer or days off, or what was that exactly? Um, so the people I spoke to, um, one of them mentioned how a lot of female teachers will try and plan their pregnancies to happen over the summertime mm-hmm. so they don't have to take any time off. And uh, Sean Andrews, who I spoke with, his uh, wife for her third baby, they actually induced her labor a week early so that she wouldn't um, or he wouldn't miss the start of the semester and have to take off time, which would result in a pay cut for him. And we do have Sean Andrews, a, an associate professor in the History, Humanities, and Social Sciences Department and president of Faculty Senate, speaking a little bit more on what uh, some of his parental leave or potential parental leave uh, situations were like. You know, it's kind of a, an insane policy at the, at the national level to have people who are caring for a newborn child, you know, like expecting them to be kind of productive at work. It's very, very mentally taxing. You know, you, don't, you aren't getting enough sleep here. You're kind of trying to get your head around this whole new way of life. It, it would be better if you gave people more time, get themselves into that new space, and, and then be, be ready to come back to work. Oh, so when we say a pay cut, what exactly is Columbia's parental leave policy then? Columbia's parental leave policy is in compliance with the Federal Family Medical Leave Act, which mandates that employees can have up to 12 weeks mm-hmm. time off unpaid, and when they return, they won't um, lose their jobs because they took 12 weeks off. Okay. So the pay cut Andrews would have taken isn't, oh, you had a baby in Columbia said, no, you're getting paid less. It's you have a baby and you have to take time off and you just don't get paid for that period. Yeah, exactly. Okay. And then just to reiterate, uh, Columbia's parental leave policies are not in violation of federal guidelines, but they're kind of touching at the minimum requirements. Is that correct? Yeah, definitely bare minimum. So we have the, the 12 weeks then unpaid uh, is that how do other colleges in the area compare, like maybe DePaul or Roosevelt? Do you happen to know what their parental leave policies are? Um, a lot of colleges, trend wise, are just the Family Medical Leave Act, but some of them are starting to move forward in terms of their progressiveness. Um, DePaul, I spoke to, they actually provide, I think it was 10 weeks paid time off. Mm-hmm. And uh, we see a lot of colleges, especially on the East Coast, starting to move towards that. So it's not entirely uncommon that mm-hmm. it's it's the uh, 12 weeks unpaid in, in schools, at least. Yeah. But then 
So it was a couple schools that are actually doing things a little bit differently. Um, how do, so not maybe not looking at schools specifically, because I know some major companies may have some nice policies, but I think you actually taught, or not talked to, but you had Amazon's and Netflix parental mm-hmm. leave policies. Do you remember what those were? Yeah, so um, again, trend-wise, Silicon Valley and tech industries are the most progressive when it comes to parental leave policies for their employees. Netflix will um, provide a full year with 100% pay for their employees during parental leave. And what Amazon mm-hmm. does is actually really unique. I've never heard of it. They, If their employee, if their partner working at a separate company does not get paid time off, then they can donate their time off to their partner or the, the pay that they would have gotten during that time off. So is that a person who works at Amazon, say the husband works at Amazon mm-hmm. and the wife works at Google or something? And so the, they could donate across companies or? Yeah, the pay. They would donate all that pay that they would have lost. Oh, oh, that's, I've literally never heard of that. That's actually mm-hmm. kind of interesting. So then um, looking at colleges in the college industry, you mentioned uh, Silicon Valley. What is so special about the college industry and, and how many people they employ? Colleges uh, employ a decent part of the state populations across the nation, so they are responsible for a lot of parental leave. Yeah, I mean, now that I think about that more, was the hospitals, are they also up there? Mm-hmm, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, I don't even know how many colleges are, are in the state, but I feel like it's a, it's a fair bit there. But uh, is there anything else we're missing with your story? So it's the, Actually, we never really touched on it. What exactly is parental leave? How can someone take parental leave? <laughs> parental leave is when a employee has either a medical um, emergency for a family member or is having a baby or is adopting a baby, mm-hmm. um, either the father or the mother, and they can take some time off from a school to go and um, bond with that baby. Um, but you do have to apply for it through the school because it's a federal act. Mm-hmm. So it doesn't necessarily have to be about someone being born or a birth of a baby. It could be about family emergencies, too. So just it's kind of more of a general thing. Is that it? Yeah, the Family Family Medical mm-hmm. Leave Act covers a number of things. But parental leave specifically, which is part of that, is only for new babies. So when we were talking about the people earlier who were trying to induce pregnancy before the semester started... They were just trying to get a week to spend kind of with their child, making sure everything was okay before going back to class. Yeah, exactly. And a lot of mothers in America actually return to work almost two weeks Mm -hmm. after having a baby, which is um, sometimes not good medically or mentally for them or their child. Okay. Okay. So um, is there anything else we're missing with this story? I think you got it. Okay, well, Alexandra, thank you for coming in today. Yeah, no problem. From one on-campus topic to another, I have Tessa Brubaker in the studio with me today. And Tessa, you reported on graduate students joining a union, or is it... Graduate student instructors. Graduate student instructors. So what's the difference between a graduate student and a graduate student instructor? Well, as some undergraduates may have, um, during some of your intro classes, maybe they were taught by graduate students. So it's just a graduate student who is an instructor for one or two courses um, as part of their MFA program. Wait, graduate students can teach? Yes. (laughs) Have you had a graduate student instructor? I did for my writing and rhetoric two class, I believe. Was he nice? 
she was she. lovely. <laughs> I've never had a graduate student. Really? No. I, didn't. I, I believe the college is going to try and expand the teaching opportunities. But as far as I know, um, it's only available in the creative English okay. and creative writing yeah, department. I didn't know you could do that. So this makes a little more sense. So your story is about graduate student instructors mm-hmm. who are trying to join CFAC because a graduate student instructor would teach a class or two, kind of more of the intro stuff. But mm-hmm. they are teaching. Yes, they are teaching. Um, they decided to unify over the summer and join forces with CFAC. And we do have a clip of Diana Valera, adjunct professor in the photography department and president of CFAC, talking about the expansion of the union. When our union first organized, it was um, there wasn't an option of organizing outside of just the um, part-time faculty. And with recent um, decisions in the NLRB in the last few years, it allowed um, all non-tenure track to organize under uh, one bargaining unit, mm-hmm. which, of course, um, allows a lot more strength and voice and in decisions and, um, and, and really having a voice in the college. Okay, so we're going to have to work through this a little bit more because it gets kind of more confusing as we yes. go along. So you spoke with a graduate student. Did they say, you know, for certain, without any doubt, that graduate student instructors have joined CFAC? Yes, uh, not every, and, it, and it's important to know that not every graduate student instructor signed union cards to, mm-hmm. you know, be a part of CFAC. Um, but the, the majority of um, the votes that they needed in order to unify, they got Okay. So around like 25 student instructors. Mm-hmm. Um, Do we happen to know the total of graduate student instructors or is it kind of a nebulous thing that changes? Um, I asked one of my sources and he wasn't quite sure the exact number just because sometimes it's hard but, to but tell. But is, it's around the mid-20s. 25 is a yeah. decent number. It's not like, oh, there are 200 graduate students. This is a no. small bit. It's like this yeah. is a, a decent number of instructors, at least uh, to our knowledge. So here's where it gets a little bit tricky. Does the college recognize that these graduate student instructors are a part of CFAC as of press time? Um, not yet. They submitted for recognition. Um, and when I spoke with the president of CFAC, um, Diana Valera, she said that they should be hearing probably by next week. So they submitted for recognition. Is that just... What, do you know a little bit about that process? I know when you are um, submitting to join a union um there's like a voting process you have to sign union cards and then you have to like submit to the college in order to bargain so the college could soon recognize these instructors at least they've submitted so they have the votes so the only thing that could really stop it is the college just not recognizing it yes okay yeah and that's a bit of a complicated process so i think we're going to leave it at that for now but why are these graduate student instructors trying to join CFAC, allegedly, whatever word you want to use wherever we're at in the process? So why are they trying to join CFAC? Well, the three graduate student instructors that I spoke with um, said that they joined because they, first of all, they're not treated as faculty by the college is what they said. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they have, they do all the same things that part-time faculty do, like teach classes, grades, all that stuff, but they don't get healthcare benefits. Um, and they don't get paid enough. So on top of, you know, teaching their classes, doing their graduate work study, which is a lot more workload than if you're an undergraduate Mm -hmm. outside of that, they have to find outside work as well. And they also have to find time to enjoy life. And it's just a lot. So, so when we say they teach these classes, we, we mentioned your, at least the one person you had, 
are they teaching them by themselves? Yeah, or they're, okay, a, full, so they're a full instructor, so yeah. So it's not like a TA where it's like, here's the, the professor and you help. It's You get to class, you mm-hmm. do the homework, mm-hmm. you have the syllabus. It's like, it's, it's obviously you have to align a certain guideline set by the college, but it's kind of they're running the show. Yeah, she was my professor, yeah. Oh, hmm. Okay, yeah, well, that's even more interesting because I really did not know that graduate students could do that. And we had Peter Ritchie, a second-year graduate student instructor. Yes. Okay, <laughs> got to make that distinction. In the MFA fiction program, and he said... Um, Sorry, no. um, he is a student in the MFA fiction program, but he's a graduate student instructor in the English and Creative Writing Department. So he does teach, but he's, he's a graduate student. Yes. Okay, got it. So we, we do have him talking a little bit about why he would want to unionize... Do we know for a fact if he signed a card or not? Yeah. Okay, so, yeah, it makes more sense then. Unionization and being able to bargain becomes so important so that we're not completely maxing ourselves out (laughs) and just driving ourselves into a ditch every Mm -hmm. semester trying to keep everything (laughs) afloat because that's not what being a graduate student should be. Again, that was Peter Ritchie, who does teach some classes in the fiction or he's a graduate student in the mfa fiction program it's a little complicated there but why you know why is it such a big deal that graduate student instructors are allegedly joining cfac um so it's a big deal because um originally the union uh was just made up of part-time faculty and that's what so it, was it was called PFAC? it was it was called pfac but okay. then over the summer um with the joining of graduate student instructors and Diana Valera um, talked a little bit about how the union wanted to unionize more faculty across distinctions across the college. So that's kind of why they changed their name from PFAC to the Columbia Faculty Union. So CFAC. Yes. Okay. So lit- so they're trying to get um, as many non-tenor faculty as they can to be in their union. Um, okay. And I believe that one of the sources that I spoke with... Um, you know, approached Diana, um, asked about what they were planning, their initiatives, and then they started having meetings over the summer about potentially, you know, unionizing and joining CFAC and what their demands are going to be at the bargaining table. Okay. Um, and it kind of went from there. And one of my sources did tell me that there is a very big rush to get into to, you know, be recognized by the college and, and be able to bargain. Graduate student instructors graduate rushing student, in yes. so that they can bargain. So that they can, because right now CFAX, um, as we all know, are in the process of negotiating a contract. Oh, so they want to try and get on that as quickly as yes. possible to be included in it and get the benefits and things that some of them were pushing for. Mm-hmm. Okay. And, and, and then, so just, the, it's kind of the union growing and that's why this is kind of a, a big topic here. But also, how easy is it to, like, apply? I know we touched on it sporadically throughout this little segment here about signing cards the process but it's it's no easy thing to just join this union Mm -hmm. um i i mean i personally don't know but i know that when i was speaking with my sources you know they talked about how they went to all the different like columbia buildings and spoke with people about you know what their concerns are and what they're trying to do and get people involved so i'm sure that process of actually going out into the community and talking to people was probably difficult but Okay, yeah. and then, so just so I have everything straight, because we've got a couple minutes here and I want to make sure there's no more confusion, because as we've gone through this, I've been a little confused that um, this all kind of started in the summer, mm-hmm. and then they have they have, they have been officially joined because they're sending the request for recognition to the college. Yes. So they could soon be a part of it officially, and that's why... 
The graduate student instructors say they are a part of the union, but the college is like, we don't recognize you yet. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Until whenever they make a response next yeah, week. And, then again, and all of this is as of press time, so they could just join over the weekend and really confuse everything. But uh, I think I've got everything all square now, but I do have one final question. This is the only type of student body or anything kind of involved in CFAC. Is that right? Like, there are no undergraduate yeah, students you have to in be, there, right? You have to be an employee of the college, yeah. To try and join the Columbia Faculty Union. Yeah. So, that's so, not, so student workers wouldn't count. But. Okay, yeah, so just some sort of instructor, adjunct, all that type of stuff. Okay, well, I think I think we finally got it all. Is there anything else we need to say? Have we, have we told people enough about it yet? I think so. Yeah, I think and, we uh, managed yeah. to do as much I know, as we can. <laughs> I know in the beginning we're sitting here like, what are we going to talk about? Well, <laughs> we, we've unfurled a lot of things, but you can go to ColumbiaChronicle.com. And you can find uh, more about the story there. I think it's in the paper. Is that right? Yes. Yeah. Okay. It's yeah. campus so, front. Oh, that's the third page. So <laughs> you, you don't even have to flip very far to find it. <laughs> but you can pick that up at the newsstands throughout the city in the campus or go to ColumbiaChronicle.com. Tessa, thank you for coming by today. Thank you, Blaze. As Tessa Brubaker leaves the studio, I'd like to welcome in Jermaine Nolan. And Jermaine, I've spent enough time talking about you know, Columbia on-campus stuff. Mm -hmm. This whole podcast has been about on-campus things, which is important, but it's time to finally shift gears, and we have, what, $1 lots? That's the final story of the podcast today. Yeah, yeah, that's eye-popping, isn't it? Yeah, but that's... There's a little more to it. There's a catch, isn't there? Definitely, definitely. Okay, so basically your story is about Chicago selling vacant plots of land for $1. Mm-hmm. And then what are, what are the stipulations <clears throat> that that you have to qualify to spend a dollar on this lot. Right, so the program is called Large Lots. Um, it's a program through the city, um, but like you said, it's not as easy as you think. So you Darn. can't just walk up to City Hall with a dollar and buy some land. Man, I had my quarters already. <laughs> I was gonna buy out the whole city of Chicago. Yeah. I would have had every lot in the whole place. Yeah, so um, I spoke with one of the commissioners, or deputy commissioners from the Department of Planning and Development, and he was telling me that in order to purchase the land, you have to first own land on the block that you're interested in purchasing on okay. it on. Okay. Um, you also have to um, not be in debt with the city. So you have to be current on all your taxes, water bills, even like parking tickets. Oh, um, I know that, that disqualifies a couple of people I know right yeah, now. Yeah, definitely. And then so once all of that is fine, then you can purchase the land for a dollar um, and then you start the application process. That takes a little bit of a while. Okay. This is about... Is it nine months? Nine or less? Something yeah, like yeah. That? Uh, he was saying that it's about nine months to a year for everything to go through. Ooh. Um, so, yeah. Yeah, it's okay. going to be a little while if you so, apply. Yeah. So, I mean, I've heard of nonprofit organizations, and I think I've reported in the past where, like, a health center or something was sold a, a plot of land for a dollar. So that way, you know, it could something that benefits the community. Right. But if you meet these requirements, you know, you're, you're not in debt, you live on the block, can you buy the dollar plot and do whatever you want with it? Or does it have to be a certain business or a certain something? Yeah, so um, like I was saying, I'm not going to try to pronounce his last name, but I think it's Stras Bosco. Um, Peter Stras Bosco was telling me that in order to purchase the land, you have to live on the, on the block mm -hmm. and that the program is designed 
to uh, benefit people in that neighborhood. Okay. So you can't be like a speculator looking for a new place to open a high rise or something. You know, they want people who live in that neighborhood and are tired of seeing like empty lots or, you know, empty spaces on their block and they can build it up and, you know, do whatever you want. And they also have a link on the website where you can get advice. So say you want to start like a community garden, you can call the city and he'll give you like zoning and whether you can sell your vegetables or stuff like that. So also all the legal snafus that could come out of everything. Yeah. Yeah. The city seems to be very interested in developing like empty lots and giving people as, as much help as they need to get that. I think we may have touched on this, but why did the city create this program, the Large Lots program? Right. So it's very interesting. So I was calling around to get interviews and speak to people. And one of the people that I spoke with, her name is Sonia Eldridge, um, and she works at Back of the Yards. I don't want to miss. I think it's the Neighborhood Council. I think I have it here. Yeah, the Neighborhood Council at Back of the Yards. But before that, she had another position. also with with working with the city and she was a part of the brainstorming process that came up with the large lots uh, program because she was working at High Park um, and also like working with people in Inglewood Mm -hmm. and the people in the neighborhood of Inglewood were just tired of seeing like empty lots or you know burnt down buildings that weren't being developed or anything so they were wondering you know what can we do with these empty spaces Um, so they pitched that idea to the city and the city ran with it. Okay yeah so the genesis of the program was in Inglewood and we do have Sonia Eldridge who's the program director for the Back of the Yards Neighborhood Council, who um, was kind of mentioning how she was in the meetings and people were wondering how they could take these empty lots and make it something for the neighborhood. This large lot program came out of Englewood. Uh, folks from Englewood were asking, like, what can we do about all of these vacant lots? How can we repurpose them? You know, especially the city-owned lots. And that's sort of how this program was born. Again, that was Sonia Eldridge, Program Director for the Back of the Yards Neighborhood Council. Jermaine was also able to track down William Hill, who is the owner and operator of Will Hill Gallery, and he purchased a lot through the Large Lots Program. I had been, uh, I had cultivated it uh, before it was on sale, so maybe ten, uh, seven to ten years I was taking care of the land mm-hmm. next to my home. So we just heard Will Hill speak, and he made it a sculpture garden? Yeah. I mean, oh, okay. So it can really be, like, it kind of, if I was to buy it, it would probably end up being just a garden. Mm-hmm. Or I'd put up a fence and, like, that's a, a field there. Yeah, but, I think so I would. So that's a sculpture garden. Is it a nice sculpture garden? Did you get to see it? From the website, it looks very, very interesting. And then they offer um, tours of the garden, too. So. Oh, look at that guy. He's making it a whole uh, operation out of it. Yeah. But, so he's been, he said, at least in his case, he was cultivating the land for about seven to ten years. How mm-hmm. long has this program been running? Um, so I'm not sure the uh, how many years it's been around, um, but this is the third rollout of oh, the okay. program. So And then we said it takes about nine months for all the applications to roll through. Yeah. So, so do a little bit of math. It's about it's about like three years, I would say. Yeah, throw in some bureaucracy at a year or two for yeah. that. So you was probably cultivating that land for a couple of years, and they're like, you want to buy it for a dollar? Mm-hmm. So that's interesting. That's a that's a weird. It's an interesting way to put it. Yeah, he was probably like you and I, and saw it on the news, and was like, hey, I'm gonna buy, buy that. I mean, it's right down the block. Is it is it right next door to him, or is he in the block? Yeah, he said it's right next to his house. So. Oh, could you That's imagine very having, you know how many bugs you probably got in an empty <laughs> lot right next to his house? 
Yeah, that's probably crazy. I think if I had the opportunity to, I would probably make it like a football field or something. Yeah, something. I mean, everyone wants to build things, but it's like, man, I don't want to pay to build something. So I'll I'll stripe the field, I'll Mm -hmm. mow the grass, I'll take care of all that. But, yeah, I think we're on the same uh, same wavelength here. But uh, you said that in December they're rolling out another it's another round of it is that right yeah so in december um they'll start taking applications for round three according to their website the large lots website um so yeah uh right now they're going through the process of round Mm -hmm. two they're looking at applications and uh people's um, making sure that no one who's applied owes money or, you know uh, what I mean? The whole, they have to go through the whole process. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, so it's still round two right now. So that's still like the, I'm assuming there's the application process, the review process, which they're in right now, mm-hmm. and then the actual like awarding the lots for the dollar. Right, okay. right. Like yeah. The approval. Mm-hmm. So, Jermaine, we got about 30 seconds, maybe a minute here. So you said you'd put a football field on it? Yeah, and it's strange because uh, I grew up kind of close to Inglewood. Oh, so, you, so you, you're uh, checking now. You're looking at the available lots, and you're like, yeah. hmm, you owe any money to the city? Not that I know of. Maybe I should check. Yeah, you, you want to double. <laughs> all of a sudden, Jermaine pays all of his parking tickets so that way he can get it. Also, I think it's important to say um, that once you buy the plot of land, it's not just yours for a dollar. You have to pay the property, the property tax taxes. every year. Okay. So there's a little bit more that's of how a they catch. Get you. And that's how they keep getting mm-hmm. more money. Jermaine, it looks like we are all but out of time. Thank you for coming in today. All right. Thanks for having me. Mm-hmm. Thank you all for tuning in to this week's episode of Chronicle Headlines. You can check out all these stories and more in our print edition available on campus, on our website, ColumbiaChronicle.com, and our additional coverage on social media. We are at CC Chronicle on Twitter, Instagram, and Snapchat, and The Chronicle on Facebook and YouTube. Chronicle Headlines is made possible with the collaboration of the staff of the Columbia Chronicle and WCRX-FM, Chicago's Underground. Under the leadership of the Chair of the Communication Department of Columbia College Chicago, Suzanne McBride, I've been your host, Blaze Mesa. Until next time.